Bill. I'm going to preface this by saying I might get a little emotional. Hopefully that'll be okay. And I appreciate Kirk and Eric both for their message today because to me this kind of just puts the kind of puts everything together for me. And one thing that Eric said was that, you know, we're supposed to stir each other up. And hopefully I can do that tonight. Tonight my question is, how close of a relationship do we have with God and His Son Jesus? Is it a holidays only relationship? Is it a yearly one? Is it a, just a monthly relationship? A weekly? A daily? An hourly? Is it a minute or just every second of the day? So we're going to talk about our relationship in perspective as to where we stand with Him. I start out saying He did it all. He didn't just do, do something. He just didn't do a lot. He did it all. We must fully understand what He has done for us or we will never fully appreciate who He is. If we miss out on this, the enormity of His work on the cross, then we will never fully realize how much we need Him. Jesus is not just a nice little addition to our lives. He is not just a nice little self-help program. According to the Scriptures, Jesus did it all. So the question is, is what did Jesus specifically do for us? There's going to be a few scriptures, but the main premise of our lesson is going to be in Mark 15. Well, number one, he was pierced and punished. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Some translation says he's crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes and wounds, he was healed. See, the innocent son of God took our punishment for sin. His body was pierced. Receiving what we deserved so that we could heal from our sin. Another thing Jesus did for us, He poured out His life. He poured out His life unto death and was numbered with transgressors. For He bore the sins of many and made intercession for those transgressors. That's Isaiah 53 and 12. You see, this means that he literally gave up his life and emptied himself so that we could become full. He was numbered 
with the transgressors, the sinners, so that he could take away our sin. He made that intercession for us. This means that he took our plea before the Father so that God would have mercy upon us. He was also delivered over to death. Romans 4.25 He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justifications. The word delivered literally means that he was taken into custody in order to be judged. He was judged by God and took the sentence of our guilt so that we could be free. Jesus died as an act of love. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God's love is settled at the cross. No matter what we are going through in life, we can look to the cross and be reminded of God's love. He did it all to let us know the depths of God's love for us. Also, Christ died for the sins for all. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring you to God. 1 Peter 3.18 there will never be start that again. There will never again need to be a sacrifice for our sins. There is no great act that we will need to ter- do to try to gain God's forgiveness. Jesus died for our sins, for my sins, once and for all. And our only job is to hear the word, believe, repent of our sins, confess Christ, be baptized, and to continue to live faithful. You see, we were separated. We were alienated. But he made a way for us so that we could come back to God. You see, he also became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He not only died for our sins, he became our sin. You know, it's our nature that has been polluted by its sin. But Jesus took it on himself. He became our sin. Why? So that we could become his righteousness. See, Jesus made a trade with us on the cross. And it's as if he says, I take your sin upon me and give you my righteousness and forgiveness in exchange. 
You will no longer be called sinful, guilty, or forsaken of God. You will be called righteous and holy. You will be called beloved of God. Why? Because He did it for us. So we're going to be looking at probably some of the most important, the most important event in the life of the most important person in history, which is actually the very foundation of Christianity. But given familiarity and centrality of the death of Jesus on the cross, sometimes it can be skipped over the impact of the cross on our daily lives. So this evening what we're going to do is we're going to try to get a fresh set of eyes. I hope that we can walk away changed. You know, in Mark 15 and 39, even that hardened centurion who saw Jesus' death up close was convinced that he was, in fact, the Son of God. So there's three things that we're going to be walking through in this text. And we're going to ask three different questions. Why did Jesus suffer? Number two is, why did Jesus suffer this way? And then number three, what does his suffering mean to us? So first of all, how did Jesus suffer? We all are familiar with the text in Mark 14 and 15. I think Mark shows us three primary categories in this text. We always talk about the physical torment of Jesus. What about the emotional trauma that Christ went through? What about his spiritual agony? So we'll talk through some of the ways that Jesus endured physical suffering during this important day. So basically, I'm going to start right in Mark around 15, 13. After his arrest, very early in the morning, Jesus is brought to Pontius Pilate by the high council of the Jewish religious leaders to be tried for his claims to be the actual son of God and for making him out, himself out to be a king. During this trial, it becomes clear that Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent and, all, and that the chief priests are envious of this young upstart teacher and revolutionist. However, Pilate bends to the will of the crowd, sentencing Jesus to death by crucifixion, a punishment clearly that he did not deserve, but one that was fitting for treason against Rome. And as customary prior to the Romans' executions, Pilate first had him scourged, now, scourging was an incredible, painful torture. It was inflicted by a whip with multiple leather cords that would have bits of sheep bone maybe in it, sharp pieces of metal embedded throughout. 
This instrument was designed to inflict the maximum pain and blood loss as each lash would have ripped out large pieces of flesh, exposing the skeletal muscles completely. With Jesus' hands tied to the post, Jesus endured this horrific pain at the hands of the Roman soldiers and as a crowd of onlookers watched. And it's an amazing thing that many on that day knew it was coming. It was specifically predicted in Mark 10, 34. Christ knew. After the flogging, Jesus has a lot of has lost a massive amount of blood. His back has been literally ripped to shreds. And more than likely, he was probably pretty weak. At this point, the Roman soldiers dragged him away from the governor's palace when they commence a new level of mockery and humiliation. They twisted together a crown of thorns. They ran that symbol of the curse down upon his head. Now we have fresh blood running down Jesus' face and the soldiers begin to beat him over the head with a mock scepter or a reed driving those thorns even deeper into his temples and his forehead. When the horrific ordeal was complete, they ripped off that mock royal robe and led him outside the cities of Golgotha, the hill of the skull. So I'm now already weakened and bloodied at the state barely, and barely recognizable. Jesus is to be crucified. You see, again and again, Jesus is fulfilling those scriptures. In Isaiah 52, written hundreds of years before this moment, the prophet had written, Many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred, beyond human resemblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Jesus had truly been marred beyond resemblance. And now he goes to the crucifixion. You know, today when you hear the word crucifixion, you probably instantly think of Jesus. But back then, this was a method of torture, of humiliation, and execution that ancient Rome had used liberally, liberally on non-citizens, criminals, those who threatened the Roman rule. It was a death deserved, or reserved, a death reserved for the absolute dregs of humanity. You see, Mark writing in the first century did not have to explain what crucifixion was to the audience. But we don't live in that time, and it's not a commonplace event now. But after being forced to carry that horizontal crossbeam through the streets, Jesus collapses. 
requiring a random stranger from the crowd named Simon to carry it the rest of the way. And at the top of the hill, he's thrown down on his back, exacerbating his already open wounds. They grab his hands. They place the iron stakes over his wrist joint, over the joint of his wrist, and they drive these nails into them. If that's not bad enough, he was lifted up and affixed to the vertical beam, now forming that familiar T. And then they nailed his feet to it as well. The cause of death in crucifixion was typically suffocation. See, when the entire weight of the body hanging by your wrist, you could not properly exhale. Suffice to say that for the next six hours, every single breath Jesus takes is excruciating. The cumulative physical suffering and the pain Jesus endures throughout this execution is somewhat worse on the imaginable and human existence. But I think it's important for us to understand the flesh and blood reality of what Jesus went through. Because you think about it, that was a common practice in those days. But there's a pattern of physiological and emotional suffering in this text that is perhaps even worse. We're going to talk about emotional trauma. We're going to kind of rewind a little bit back to 6 a.m. in the morning when this unfolded from a new perspective. First off, Jesus is rejected by the religious leaders, verse 1 through 5. He is brought before Pilate and accused of many things including false statements that were created by those, other, those religious leaders. Have you ever been accused of something you didn't do? You know that instinct of self-defense and justification for ourselves just wells up. Can you imagine how Jesus feels? That temptation to defend himself, he promptly crushes it. And he faithfully trusts in the plan that God has put before him. He knows this is how it must be. But you know it has to hurt to hear your name, your reputation dragged through the mud and just allow it to happen. It hurts especially because these priests and leaders are the ones charged by God to shepherd and protect His own people, to guide them towards truth and help them listen to Him. And now God's Son is standing in the midst. They spit on Him, literally, completely reject, rejecting His gracious rule. So there's emotional trauma number one. Next, Jesus is rejected by the government. He was brought before Pilate as a reader. There is a dramatic tension for the moment in the crowd. 
And for just a moment, you'd think that maybe he might get a little justice. But that wasn't the plan. See, Pilate's cowardice before the people results in a rejection for Jesus here as well. The true high king of the universe suffers injustice at the hand of the system that it was designed to protect. Injustice being treated unfairly cuts to the core of the human soul. Jesus, God in the flesh, had to go through that. Then, Jesus is rejected by the people. Verses 13 through 15. The same Jewish crowd who had lined the streets with palm branches and seemingly accept the Messiah shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, as he rode into the city on a donkey, now have turned on him completely. Given the choice between a convicted murderer and the sinless giver of life, the people reject Jesus for Barabbas. This signals the kind of king they really wanted Jesus to be. They wanted someone who would storm in and throw over the Roman government. But instead, the crowds of people that Jesus taught, he healed, he fed, and ultimately came to save would send him to die in the end. And again, here we can understand how painful this disapproval, this disdain of others can be. Even though we don't have to experience the outright hatred of a mob, on the cross, Jesus, Jesus is rejected by the criminals on either side of him. And his disciples are nowhere to be found because they have scattered. Now we're going to talk about spiritual abandonment. As the rejection builds, he moves into the third vantage point on this of how Jesus suffered. The spiritual agony. As, lawful as, as awful as physical torment and disregarding of humility, the emotion rejection by everybody. The reason Jesus was different from any others before or since comes in verse 33 and 34. It says, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land and in, until the ninth hour. Literally, the sun had stopped shining for three hours in the middle of the day. Darkness like this in Scripture carries with it a meaning of divine judgment. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma, sabachthani. I hope I got that right. Which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Can we even fathom being completely alone without God? But we know on some level Jesus knew he was forsaken. That's why he cried out. He is abandoned, deserted, 
stranded by God himself. And he feels this intense pain of loss and loneliness to the core of his soul. But he's asking the question. So this is the same thing that we need to be doing. Why? Why in the world would the perfect son suffering all this physical, emotionally, psychologically, and most of all spiritually, why is he forsaken? Why did Jesus have to suffer like this? Now, there's a few clues in Mark that illustrates this for us. Go back to the night before when Jesus was praying in the darkness in Gethsemane. During his prayers, this includes a fairly odd phrase about a cup. It says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me now. See, this cup is figurative language. It wasn't an actual cup. But it's the same one referenced in chapter 10 when James and John asked about setting on the right hand and the left hand of who was coming into power. And he said, can you drink this cup that I am about to drink? So what's this cup about? If you go back to Isaiah 51 and 22 in the Old Testament, and it was specifically in the book of Isaiah, there was a reference to a cup of staggering. And what it is, is it says it's a bowl of God's wrath. This cup is a symbol of God's right anger, his judgment upon evil, and that he will pour out. Try to imagine this. Picture a cup. And then imagine that every time evil has been committed by the human race since the beginning of time, this cup is filling up. The cup of God's holy wrath against evil, as the good king that he is, it's filling up. And justice must be done. See, someone has to drink the cup. It's either you or I that will drink the poison cup of God's judgment on our sins. Our rebellions. Or someone has to drink it in our place. Drinking the cup of judgment. In these moments on the cross, Jesus is drinking that cup. He's draining it to the bottom. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 says, For our sake, God made him to be sin. And Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So Jesus is being treated by God as sin itself. And this very curse has to be wiped out. And it's for our sakes.
But knowing that background, let's think of some, some more about why Jesus calls out like he does. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? We've seen that Jesus is experiencing the judgment of God in our place. And along with the physical, the emotional, the psychological agony, there is a profound sense of abandonment that came closer to breaking Jesus than anything else. In the Bible, the judgment of God and the felt, the felt absence of God go hand in hand. You see, in the garden, after the fall of sin, Adam and Eve are sent away from the garden, away from God's unique presence. Cain, the first murderer, is sent away from the presence of the Lord. When God's people, Israel, fell or fall into a state of idolatry rebellion, God allows them to be exiled. They were sent away from God's presence. And in the end times, the final judgment described in 2 Thessalonians 1 says, As the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of His might. So we're going to put this together. Jesus on the cross, as darkness overtakes the land, signaling the judgment of God, drinks the cup of God's wrath on sin, which is felt more accurately in a soul-tearing act of God, His Father, turning away from Him. Jesus is abandoned. And with that, the wrath of God on our behalf as our substitute. But there's another important aspect to this note of the Gospel of Mark itself on why Jesus suffers. Jesus says earlier in Mark 10.45, says the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus knew what his mission was. Ending, out on, ending on the cross was all, was all about, and he says it's fundamentally about laying down his life as a ransom for many. He is paying a costly price to redeem those who would believe in him for salvation. He was buying us back. And what struck me this week as I studied this is just how shocking is it that Jesus would give his life for the people that totally depicted him in the text. They despised him in the text. Over and over, Jesus is deserted by his friends. He's slandered by the religious leaders. He's convicted unjustly by the government. He's mocked. He's laughed at. He's humiliated by all different kinds of people. Prior to his death in this entire chapter, there isn't a single positive description of someone in their actions towards him. If you'll turn really quick over to John 19. Verses 31 through 34. John 19, 31 and 34. 334. 
Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a, high, a day high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs be broken and that they may be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. They did not break his sorry, he did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Even after our Christ was gone, they couldn't leave it alone. They had to pierce his side. And I know that's fulfillment through prophecy. As this reminds me of Romans 5 where the Apostle Paul writes, For while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God shows us his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And that's Romans 5, 6 through 10. Understand, Jesus died for the ungodly, the unholy, the profane. And while we were still sinners, and while we were still his enemies, how much does the whole, the whole of Mark 15 showcase this? In one sense, you can see the whole of humanity in this chapter arrayed as the enemies of Jesus. Fully and completely against him, even he is holy and absolutely for them. He's for us. Giving his life so that we could live. And God did this. The Father and the Son are green together because He loves us. He loves us in spite of us. His love is not unconditional. It's actually contra-conditional. We are not lovable according to the conditions of His covenant. Love like this is beyond our understanding but it is our absolute joy to experience it. The scripture says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now I may not have got all of the things that happened. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. The disciples slept when Jesus asked him to watch. They all forsook him and fled. The people that God loved bore false witnesses against him. The leaders plotted to get what they wanted. The people spit on Jesus. 
those ones, they blindfolded him and beat him and mocked him. Peter denied him. They bound Jesus. They yelled, crucify him, crucify him. He was scourged by the Roman soldiers. They mocked him because they put the purple robe on and said, all hail. The crown of thorns that were placed on his head, the striking of those crown of thorns as they beat the thorns into his flesh. They tried to give him wine mingled with myrrh. The Roman soldiers, they crucified the Son of Christ. Those people that passed by wagging their heads and tempting Jesus to save himself. For those that divided his garment and cast lots. For the Roman soldier that pierced Jesus' side and the water and blood, the water and blood flowed. Even those people that rolled the stone in front of the tomb where Jesus' body was held. You see, I'm them. I am no better than the person that rolled the stone. I am no better than the Roman soldier that pierced his side. I am no better than the person that divided his garments. I am no better than the person that tempted Jesus. I am no better than the Roman soldiers that crucified him. I am no better than the disciples that fell asleep. I'm no better than the disciples that forsook him and fled. And I'm no better than Judas that betrayed him. With that, now that we've seen this, what does Jesus' suffering mean for us? Number one is how Jesus suffered. Number two was why Jesus suffered. So in verse 30, 37, it says, And Jesus uttered with a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this in this way, he breathed his last and said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. I think there's two main takeaways that we can leave with this, this evening, on what Jesus Christ and the cross means for us. We have access and we have confidence. You see, when Jesus died finishing his work, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. This is the same veil that would have separated the most intimate and special places in the entire temple, the most holy place. In the temple system, the high priest was only allowed in there once a year to take this. And when he did go in, he had to bring a sin offering for the guilt of the people. 
When Jesus accomplished this on the cross, depicted vividly in the tearing of that veil, it ripped wide open the way to God. The way to experiencing the presence of the real living God through Jesus himself. What does that mean for us? Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Because of the finished sufferings of Christ, because the curtain is now torn, we can draw near to Him, draw near to God. And we can draw to Him with confidence, not sheepishly, not sulking, not cowardly, not unsure, unsure of His love, we can draw near to confidence to receive grace whenever we need it. That curtain is still open. So tonight, are you anxious? You can come close. Are you worn out? Come this way. Are you grieving? You can enter in. Do you need help? You can head straight for the front, straight to the throne. Because of Jesus, by his faith in him, you are welcomed in the place of the high king. We are no longer strangers or an enemy, but as a son and as a daughter. And this brings me to the last, the table. Where our access to the presence of God and our confidence in his love for us, where we are cemented week after week. We just, we've just walked the very passage, passages about what the meal is about. We've watched how Jesus suffered for us. And now we can see Jesus drinking that cup of judgment in our place. So that cup is the cup of victory. You know, we must obey Him to truly receive all that He is and all that He has done for us. We have to be ready. So tonight, will you acknowledge Him of all that He's done for you? Will you become obedient to Him? And will you receive Him? The invitation call is about to be sung. So please take this opportunity if you haven't put on Christ in baptism tonight. And if you have put on Christ. And you just need prayers of the church. We are prepared to pray with you and for you. And I think it's interesting because I ended this. It's only a step away. Please come while we stand and sing.